Good evening and blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom of Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. Hello, this is Leslie Gist, and tonight we have a special show. Our guest host is the one and only, the world-renowned author of Black Indians, uh, a book about the history of African Americans resisting slavery. Mr. William Katz, are you on the line? I sure am, Leslie. Okay. Thank you so much. I'll let you take over. Okay. What we're going to talk about tonight is a little-known aspect of American history, and I'll be introducing our uh, important guest, Pompey Fixico, Phil Pompey Fixico, president of the Semeroon Historical Society, in a few minutes after I lay the the basis of the, the general topic. And the general topic is the Maroon settlements of the Americas. Now, I cover this rather thoroughly in Black Indians, but I, I, I can say this pretty uh, confidently. You won't find this subject in history books. That is, history books used in our schools, often even in our colleges, and so on. Although the group of people we're going to talk about, who are largely black Indians, that is a mixture of Africans and Native Americans in the Americas, were our first freedom fighters. I'll repeat that. Our first freedom fighters, not Thomas Jefferson, not Patrick Henry, not George Washington, not these figures that emerged in 1776 that we're all taught about, but a group of, some of them, by the way, unknown figures that you'll hear about today, perhaps for the first time, that become our first freedom fighters in the Americas. So let me just start off with the background of of their story. And by the way, you can uh, find out other elements of it free of charge at my website, williamlcats.com. Let me go back to the year 1502, 1503. Columbus has just landed 10 years before, and Africans have just been imported into Hispaniola by the Spanish conquerors. And by the next year, Governor Ovando of Hispaniola is reporting to King Ferdinand. His Africans fled among the Indians and never could be captured. Never could be captured. Those four words... I think, bear a lot of meaning. It means that when the Africans escaped to the Native Americans, they never could be captured because the Native Americans, who were the first people Columbus enslaved and the others enslaved, by the way, whether you were in Hispaniola, whether you're sitting where I am in the middle of New York City, 
where you're in, sitting where Pompey Fixico is out in Los Angeles, California. The first people enslaved were Native Americans. And they had to break loose of the Europeans. So by 1502, Native Americans were taking them in. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, I maintain that the first colony established here in the Americas that had any lasting power was not Jamestown, Virginia, which was ex um, et eight decades later than the one I'm talking about, <clears throat> or the Puritan colony in Massachusetts Bay, which was a century later, but a colony started in June 1526 by Lucas de Leon, a very wealthy Spaniard, along the Petty River in North Carolina, which he named San Miguel de Guadalupe. Guadalupe, Guadalupe, I'm sorry. And in 1520, Mr. Leon began his colony by sending a fellow named Gordillo to plot the land. And Gordillo teamed up with a guy named Pedro de Quixos, who was a slave trader. And what Quixos did, without anybody asking him, was he kidnapped, I just have to say kidnapped, some Native Americans to act as guides. So when Aleon landed with his band of people, which included some African slaves, included some missionaries, included a lot of soldiers, the first thing he found was that the Native Americans stayed away. And as he planted his uh, colony in a rather uh, poor place near a swamp, his people faced starvation, suffered from disease, and an epidemic swept through his colony. The result was, Aleon himself died by October 18th. The colony was beset by conflict, and uh, people marched into the wilderness uh, with swords, arresting other people, trying to run the colony, and the Spaniards ended up by fleeing back to uh, Spanish headquarters in the uh, Caribbean and eventually back to Spain. Now, as a result of this, the Africans, or I would should say shortly also prodding the Spaniards to leave, was the Africans rebelled. And they mixed with the Indians. The Indians took them in. So really what you had with San Miguel de Gualdape became a colony that lasted for years and years, we think a quarter of a century before Spanish uh, troops returned. And it, since it was composed of people from overseas, in this case the Africans, it was our first colony. Not Plymouth, not Jamestown, but this colony. And by 1522 on Hispaniola, you had a major slave rebellion 
when the uh, colony was run by Diego Columbus. Matter of fact, it started, that's Columbus's son. It started on his plantation. Many of the Africans were Muslims, by the way, and they waited until Christmas Day when the white planters were soaked with liquor, filled with food and sleeping, when they struck and then fled to the hinterland. And they were, as far as we know, met. they met Native American villages and were taking them in. So this is how the story develops of how Africans and Native Americans began to team up in the Americas. I just want to start that at, at this point, it was not any um, similarity of skin color that drew Native Americans and Africans together. It had nothing to do with it. They had the same enemy. I think we uh, we understand that Native Americans saw the Europeans as invaders. They came, they took their land, and the same Europeans, of course, imported Africans, as had the Spaniards begun in 1502. And the Africans, of course, being enslaved, uh, sought allies. Now, anthropologist Richard Price has described the alliance's first step from the people of Suriname. I'll read you a direct quote from this anthropologist. The Indians escaped first, and then, since they knew the forest, they came back and liberated the Africans, end quote. What this means was that the Native Americans came back and the Africans they, li they liberated, well, by that time, their sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers, aunts, uncles, loved ones, wives, husbands, and so on. And Native Americans, not weighted down by prejudices, as were the Europeans, opened their villages to Africans as freedom sanctuaries. And the two people came together, the uh, Africans offering a knowledge of the Europeans that the Native Americans did not have, and the Native Americans offering the Africans a safe base of resistance. And this base of resistance was uh, used and duplicated many times in the Americas. <clears throat> the, uh, num the colonies they formed, let me just have, are called maroon colonies. And they grew in size. They grew in confidence. Uh, for example, their self-respect grows because of the fear whites have of them. A white Brazilian wrote to King Zhao of Portugal in 1792. Somebody has managed to find the titles of maroon villages and maroon songs. One of them goes, I don't know the melody, black men rejoice, white men won't come here, and if he does, the, the devil will take him off. <clears throat> the Republic of Palmares lasted almost the entire 17th century in northern Brazil. It hurled back repeated Dutch and Portuguese military expeditions sent to crush it. There were other colonies all over. When I bring uh, Pompey Fixico on, he will, he and I will talk about 
the, uh, the Maroons in Florida. Another point I want to make that also is another reason why this should appear in textbooks is that women were very important in these maroon colonies. First of all, as you can imagine, most of the people who escaped were men. And although women were 15% and they often came with children, they remained a minority. So this posed a problem. Men want to have women. They want to raise families. They want to see their families live in peace, become as successful agriculturally, and so on. So women played a very crucial role in maroon life. And, uh, and, and such a person as Felipe Maria Rana became a leader in uh, Brazil, ran a thriving Amazonia column, and led her uh, colony, excuse me, and led her troops against Portuguese strongholds until they became clear there was no defeating her. And at the bargaining table, Arana won freedom, independence, and sovereignty for her people. So here's, an, and by the way, there was another uh, Maroon leader who was a woman, also in another part of Brazil. And uh, there were so few women, interestingly enough, that so, uh, in some places, women were allowed to have more than one husband under very strict rules that kept jealousy or uh, other problems from arising so that the, the village could continue on. It could have children, and children were important because that made you had families and they were worth fighting for. The men would fight even harder. Now, all of this went on while every effort was made by the Spaniards to divide people of color. For example, in 1523, Hernando Cortes tried to enforce a royal order to segregate Africans from Indians in Mexico. Between the races, we cannot dig too deep of a gulf, declared a French official. Even in the English colonies, 1776, Colonel Stephen Bull dispatched his Indian troops to hunt Carolina runaways, saying his policy was to, quote, establish a hatred end quote, between the two races. So the two races are also going to be used, attempted to use, to divide one from the other by the Spaniards. This policy does not work. And what I would call the first rainbow coalition gets established throughout North and South America. Uh, it wants to live in peace. It wants to raise families. It wants to engage in trade and have successful agricultural products, but it's kind of doomed by the Europeans to suffer attacks that go on and on. And even here in North America, every treaty that was made with Native Americans uh, from the 1721 on it contains a provision the Europeans insisted on that runaways be returned to them. For example, in 1721, the governor of Virginia had the five civilized nations, that's of the southern states, promised to return all slaves. In 1726, the governor of New York enforced or had the Iroquois Confederacy 
make the same promise in a treaty. In 1746, the Hurons had to promise, and the next year the Delawares had to promise. And we know from the records that none, there's no record of any slave being returned by any of these groups. So the alliance uh, held on. And this is the story of Maroon resistance. I can even say that the resistance was uh, stronger in South America because of the fact of the uh, topography. There was a more dense forest and jungle area where people could hide, and Native American villages had been there many years uh, taking in the uh, Africans who escaped and uh, would fled to them. So the real history of America, I would like to summarize with a quote by the great liberator, Simon Bolivar of South America in 1619. He was elected president of Venezuela, and he planned a military course that would eventually free the Americas of foreign rule. He had this to say, it is impossible to say to which human family we belong. The larger part of the native population has disappeared. Europeans have mixed with Indians and the Negroes, and the Negroes have mixed with the Indians. We are all born of one mother America, although our fathers had different origins. This this similarity is of the greatest significance. So the Maroons also helped in this process, we might say, of integrating the Americas through resistance to the invasion. Let me uh, now introduce Phil Pompey Fixico to talk a little bit about Maroons. Let Let me give you this background. He's not only president of the Semaroon Historical Society, but he's a person who once found out his origins going back uh, to ancestors in the Seminole resistance, has devoted his life to this. And I was honored uh, when last year he gave me the John Brown Lifetime Achievement Award. To me, it ranks up there with the award that the NYU Black Studies Department gave me around the same time. And uh, Pompey Fixico... It was invited to Suriname Maroon Day. The Maroons of South America are trying to group, that is, their ancestors, the, 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 those who, who descended from their ancestors, want to have their ancestors remembered and their glorious history told. And let me tell Pompey of his invitation to Maroon Day in Suriname and what it meant. Are you on, Pompey? I've introduced you and told that you were invited to go to Suriname. And could you take it from there? I told him, I've talked about the Maroons. Could you take with this and, and tell this audience what it is that you were called upon to attend there? Yes, Bill. Uh, can I give a little one-minute uh, saying that I normally do one minute, 15 seconds? Sure. Okay. 
Uh, thank you so much for this great opportunity. Racially, I'm an African Native American. Culturally, I'm an aspiring Seminole Maroon descendant. But to the people of America who see me on the street, I'm just another flavor of black. But I feel that this show will change that. My purpose is to help expand the world's body of knowledge about my ancestors who were indigenous homeland security defenders and maroon freedom fighters. My goal is to help inspire a cultural renaissance similar to the Harlem Renaissance, except instead of using the new Negro as the protagonist, we use indigenous people and maroons as the heroes and sheroes. Finally, my dream is that one day after full disclosure and reconciliation of Western Hemisphere history, that the descendants of the oppressed and the oppressors come together to form an all-inclusive American culture dedicated to freedom, justice, and equality. So that's it for that. Good. And so uh, tell us about your voyage and what it was about. Okay. Well, thank you so much again. I was chosen by the Maroon Women Chamber of Cooperation, who represent the Maroons of Jamaica, Suriname, Trinidad, Tobago. And uh, I, I was chosen to attend the Republic of Suriname's National Maroon Day as the North American Maroon representative. I visited 10 Maroon villages on both the Kodaka River and the Tapanahani River. Uh, the Tapanahani River is deep in the Suramanese rainforest near French Guiana. And there I paid a courtesy call to the Gaman Kandamasa Dabono Valenti, who is the paramount chief of the Indiyuka Maroons, the Okanisi Indiyuka Maroons. I was allowed to enter the official assembly house at Bitabiki, Suriname, where I performed the Seminole Maroon Peace Build Ceremony. Later that night, I performed the ceremony again for the village. On both locations, it was interpreted by Her Excellency Dr. Ambassador Padilla Grand Galone, former president of the uh, Maroon uh, Women uh, Chamber of Cooperation. And uh, it was videoed by UCLA a PhD candidate, Mr. Jeremy Peratz. And it, it came up on YouTube today. So... Uh, before before you go on about that, could you tell us what, uh, you know, and we'll get to that thing and you'll be able to hopefully to give people a way uh, that they can tune into it and, and see it. Sounds very exciting. What what was this particular ceremony that you performed? What was it uh, geared to do? Well, uh, I call me going there, I call it, uh, Operation Suriname Maroon Day 2015. When I say Operation Suriname, I'm I'm giving uh, kudos to the uh, uh, War on Poverty era, the Civil Rights era of Operation Breadbasket and Operation Push. These were operations aimed to uh, activate social change within a a major movement. So uh, I, I did this 
as a cultural exchange and as a peace mission. The cultural exchange was the fact that I am a, a, a maroon descendant of Seminoles and Africans here in the United States, North America. Most people don't know that that there were even maroons here. And, of course, they have the largest enclave of maroons uh, in the Western Hemisphere, which is 120,000 spread out between six maroon nations along the rivers there in Suriname. We have... If not by blood, we have a shared history. So I went there to to form a cultural alliance, and the purpose of the Seminole uh, Maroon Peace Belt Ceremony was in the tradition of um, uh, once upon a time, uh, you know, when I created the belt, it was uh, based on the wampum belt and based on the fetish fetish of Africans, the wampum belt of uh, Native Americans. What I wanted to do was to signify that a cultural connection was, was being made between the two continents in the Western Hemisphere, North America and the uh, Maroons of, of uh, South America. That, sound, that sounds very much. You know, when, when we first met, we, we met at a... Uh, at a uh, gathering in Florida, and you performed this peace belt ceremony between two nations, Native American nations with African members, of course, in Florida. Could you just tell about those two nations that you brought together in that that ceremony that I and my wife witnessed during that convention? Oh, yes. And and please give a lovely Laurie a hug. But uh, yes, I will. Okay. And, uh, just as I had worked on uh, Operation uh, Suriname for a year in the pre-promotion of it and, and uh, developing myself to to um, stay within the protocol of diplomatic protocol, and of course the ambassador was in charge of that. I had worked with two uh, descendants. One was a Gullah Geechee black Seminole descendant, and the other, that was Mr. Derek Hankerson, the other was uh, Chief Sekou of the Yamasee. And so, in truth, these people had not officially reunited since the Yamasee War of 1715. So uh, the uh, National Underground Railroad uh, knew that I had been working on this project, and as part of their conference for the Black Seminole and the Gullah Geechee, they asked could they see it, and and we were going to do it off the venue, uh, not knowing if we had permission. And I said, sure, certainly, you know, you, you can be a part of it. So they allowed us to do it. And, and so it actually signified a reunification of these people that were separated by the Yamasee War of, of 1715. And uh, let me just add that this conference was sponsored by the National Park Service as part of its effort to celebrate and, of course, to disseminate information about the Underground Railroad. And what Pompey and I were there emphasizing, and the title of the conference was, The, ne- 
the Underground Railroad that ran south because, the, and I, I gave the keynote, Pompey introduced me, and and the point of that was that everybody knew about the Underground, underground Railroad that ran north, Harriet Tubman, people were getting up to Canada and so on, but few, if any, knew of the Underground Railroad of Native Americans and African Americans that escaped south. They couldn't get up north. They went from Texas into Mexico. They went from one part of the south into Florida. They went from Florida and the Americas out into the Caribbean. But let's get back to uh, Dr. Ambassador Fidelia Grand Gallon and her invitation to you and what you did there in Suriname. Yes, well, uh, I had met uh, um, Her Excellency uh, Dr. Fidelia Grand Gallon uh, through social media a year before. And as we, uh, she, I, it took a, a quite a long time for the organization, the Maroon Women Chamber of Cooperation. They had to vet me. Uh, the members come from the, uh, of course, another very large contingent of Maroons are, are, are on uh, Jamaica, and the Paramount chief there now is uh, Gloria Sims and Mama G, and they have a movie coming out. Where she is playing the lead character of uh, Nanny, and uh, also there were. Um, Let me just add uh, that Nanny is the famous maroon leader who uh, was able to repel bullets in, in a in a way that I I don't think I can say on 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 the radio. It it was a it sounds more like myth than anything else, but it tests to the power of the Maroons that they could repel bullets by ways people never heard of. Yes. Well, that is a very strong myth. And, of course, this emboldened the Maroon fighters to think that their leader could do such a thing. Exactly. Also, there were uh, the leaders of Tobago, Trinidad, Tobago. Now, an interesting point about the Maroons of Trinidad and and Tobago, I always mispronounce it, is that uh, there were, right after the War of 1812, when Great Britain had uh, lost to the United States, of course, they had kept a promise with their royal colonial Marines who were black, who many of them had escaped from plantations, and the British promised them, if you help us fight, we'll give you freedom. Well, they lost. So what they did do is they uh, took them, a portion of them, to Trinidad, Tobago, and it was uh, five companies and the families. And so they were actually African-Americans who were taken to Trinidad, Tobago, and who they then had had won their freedom, and they now qualified as Maroons, and their descendants are still there in the company um, sections, they call them. Each company, uh, the descendants, uh, you know, they group together. And then, of course, as far as uh, 
the ambassador is concerned, she's like uh, Okanisi in the Yuka royalty because her father was a chief. And uh, she was the uh, ambassador to Trinidad, Tobago, and she is... Uh, She's like a rock star. When I was there and uh, we went around, you know, I mean, she's really like a rock star. So she got a chance to uh, know about me, about my, they're very interested in what are my networks. Well, my networks had been, I had been in the the visible uh, African Native Americans in the America show through the Smithsonian Institution. I had been on the cover of Ethno History in a 16,000-word uh, article by uh, Dr. Kevin Moroy. And uh, um, uh, now I'm a uh, partner with the uh, National Underground Railroad and president of the Simmeroon Historical Society and a member for 12 years with the uh, L.A. chapter of the Buffalo Soldiers. So she checked all of that out, my background, and then they finally decided that I was the one to come. And it Pompey, was why don't, amazing. Wait, 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 mm-hmm. Pompey, we're going to be running out of the time. So, uh, so could you just tell your connection to the, your descendants there uh, in the, uh, the Caesar Bruner? Oh, yes. Well, I am the great-grandson of Caesar Bruner, for whom uh, in in the Oklahoma Nation of Seminoles, there are 14 bands, uh, 12 are by blood, and two are uh, what they call, would be the Maroon Band. And one is Papa Caesar, Caesar Bruner. He was my great-grandfather, and his importance is that he interpreted the 1865 truce at the end of the Civil War that became the 1866 Treaty, which gives the truce ended the um, hostilities and the and the treaty uh, and you know gave the Indian rights and and benefits and membership to the blacks who had, some of them had formerly been enslaved. So I'm his direct descendant. And then on the maroon side, uh, Osa Ineha, who meaning uh, Otter, who speaks for the chief, he he was also fighting in the Civil War. I had three direct ancestors uh, who were fighting in the Civil War under the first Indian Home Guard. And this was one of the units that was led by the men who had formerly written with uh, John Brown. That's why I felt it was important to give you that uh, Lifetime Achievement Award for John Brown in behalf of people like my ancestors. Uh Uh-huh. Well, let let me just fill in the the Florida story, story. which is is this. (laughs) The Seminole Nation Nation fled discrimination discrimination in uh, Georgia and Alabama, Alabama, came down to Florida. And and there they met the Africans Africans who took them in and taught them methods of rice cultivation cultivation that they had learned in Senegambia and Sierra Leone. Oh, yes. Yes, it was... you know, there was one uh, anthropologist that, who you know and who has also been a mentor who now is in Sierra Leone working on the butts 
uh, island project, turning it into a museum. Uh, it, that was uh, Professor Joseph Opala. He said he calls it an African uh, indigenous wild west in Florida because, of course, Spain, there was no gold or silver there. So they say, well, why don't we encourage the disgruntled Indians who have broken off from the Creek uh, Nation and mm -hmm. allow uh, the uh, formerly enslaved people to cross the border and become free, and then we'll have uh, a, a pretty a tough group of proven fighters who can help us uh, protect our sovereignty against uh, uh, our neighbor to the north. Of course, that didn't help when Fort Negro came in. This is a uh, this movement by the Maroon Women Chamber of Cooperation. Uh, you know, just as I call uh, my uh, involvement operation. Uh, Suriname, this, they put something together where they can call actions for social change, whereby they may say they're sponsoring, um, uh, they, they, they made a movement uh, to help, um, uh, you know, limit HIV AIDS by through information. So that's an action. Me coming there was also a cultural exchange uh, and a drawing attention to the Maroon Day, uh, 2015. So um, it is a good thing, and it's uh, international, especially within the Caribbean, and bringing me into it added a fourth country. And, uh, you know, the Dismal Swamp, okay, this is an area that uh, is near, uh, is within Virginia and the Carolinas. Uh, of course, Mr. Katz, as a historian, would have more, but there is uh, another. There's a book out now, that, and they and the author focuses on uh, many of the maroons in the Dismal Swamp. But you know the difference there is the maroons in the Dismal Swamp. If you look at uh, a, a skate, one of their degrees of marinage, the highest degree of marinage would be Haiti, who uh, won a country. The next level of marinage would be uh, such as my ancestors, the Seminole Maroons, who they fought and won a treaty that allowed them to go free. And it's the same thing with the Maroons in Suriname, they fought against the Dutch oppressors, and in seven in uh, 1760, they won the concession of the, the land that they uh, resided on, and they won their freedom. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Leslie. Be well. Thank you, Dr. Be well. David. Be blessing, everyone. Bye bye. Bye bye.